Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. What does the word disruptive mean to you? It means going beyond the ordinary, going beyond the status quo. Not thinking in the conventional way, not just sort of following the herd. Disruptive means shaking things up, you know? Disruptive entrepreneur is somebody who sees the problem and embraces the problem with a new way. Shake up and awakening. Quality will take care of itself and you'll go from being disruptive but also profitable. When you use your own reservoir of talent, when you love what you do, then you disrupt. Mix it up, change it up and dominate. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hi, it's Rob Moore here and welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. Now, it's very, very rare that I interview anyone more than once. I think this next guest is maybe only the third or fourth person I've interviewed more than once across 400 podcast episodes. It's a very special event. Now, uh, also your next guest is someone who's helped me greatly in my life. He's been one of the major influences in my life, in in my own personal development and and the growth of my mindset. Uh, He's written dozens of books, run hundreds, maybe even thousands of courses. He's reached more than a billion people. And I believe that he is one of the world's greatest living geniuses, certainly of the modern era. Now, I don't want to do a long intro, but I could go on and on and on about one of my favorite people on the planet. I feel very privileged to be able to interview him, to become a good friend of his. We're discussing getting his audio books into our publishing house because I want to help him reach many, many more people. And I think I can do that. Now, if I didn't have my own legacy and mission, if I wasn't busy doing my own things, I would stop my life and I would dedicate it to helping this man achieve his legacy and getting his work out to billions of people. Hence why I'm interviewing for a second time on the podcast. This will not be the last you see and hear of our collaboration. So I'm very excited to introduce to you a man who's made a huge difference in in my life, one of my mentors, Dr. John Demartini. One take one. Dr. John, thanks for doing the podcast interview. Thank you. So we're back where I think it maybe was four years ago we did a, an interview here. Right here in the room. Yeah, and you're here for what reason? Well, I'm here uh, presenting the Breakthrough Experience, my signature program, doing an evening event on transforming fears into opportunities and actions, and doing some media, podcasts and social media interactions, mm-hmm. and some consulting. Would you say that the podcast interviews has gone up now since the, they've had a, like a second birth? Yeah, yeah I've done, uh, I do quite a few of them. I, I, a lot of people like doing them and I like sharing. So mm. we definitely do quite a few podcasts now. Okay, Maybe great. More than, than <clears throat> yeah, every year I think it's going up. Mm. Mm. So, I mean, I feel like it's one of the biggest growing media. Have you noticed that it's, yeah, a growing interest? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely growing and um, reaching way more people via that way mm. than even the regular media that we used to do because we're reaching people that are more targeted and more specific and we get more specific questions. Yes. So I yes. think we're able to help more people more efficiently than yeah. ever before. I've not really thought of it like that, but I think efficiency, if you, you can pick the podcast you do, which reach your target audience. Exactly. Yeah. So um, I, um, I've got to know Grant Cardone quite well. And when he came to the UK last time, I interviewed him and this was a bit of a breakthrough for me in terms of my perception of media. He said, oh, I used to come to London and do radio interviews all day, TV interviews. I don't do any now, I just do podcasts. 
I guess he felt like he's getting more reach, more targeted reach through podcasts than TV and radio. I think that's the fact. And uh, I think the media, the regular media, television, are being affected by mm. that because people go, I don't need you anymore. Yeah. Not as much. Yeah. Although mainstream, large television still has value. Mm. You know, if you do a, a major network, then um, there's still a value. Mm. But just a daily time, uh, you know, time schedule, daily show or whatever may not be like it used to be. Mm. Do you think some people are maybe a bit sick and tired of being twisted in the media, the fake news, the you know, the way they're portrayed or edited? Or the lack of control of that? I think so. I think people are savvy to what's going on. I mean, I've certainly done um, enough shows to, to see some of the fun and games that the, is actually played behind the scenes. And so I definitely um, I appreciate a, a real interview mm. where we actually talk about real issues that help real people. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's inspiring. Mm. Otherwise, you have a pre-canned kind of presentation sometimes, and that's, those don't inspire me as much. Sure. Um, and when I'll get to the sort of the main themes in a moment, but when you say fun and games, what, what does that mean? Well, I don't know if I, I guess I could say this, but um, I was doing a significant TV show um, on one of the major networks in America. And it was a financial news or financial network that a lot of millions of people are watching. And um, I was, the guy, after he interviewed me, he says that that was actually solid factual information you gave us. That's not typical. And I go, I was surprised by that. He said, mm. well, why do you say that? And he says, well, usually we give people something that sensates them, gets their attention more so than gives them facts. They don't want a fact. They want a, something that sensates them. Right. They want something that makes them, you know, respond and they can tell their friends and things. It's not about the fact because they don't, that's not what moves them. Yeah. And I always thought, okay, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm like, that's, one, one guy even admitted that, that, um, they do a dartboard on a bunch of stocks and whatever it hits that they talk <laughs> about. I thought that was really outrageous. Yeah. But because um, you're playing with people's lives out there. Mm, yeah. But, you know, that's the nature of the sensational beast. Mm. Something we strive to do on this podcast is um, relatively long form so you can go deep um, and not so sound bitey. Uh, and then also unedited. Uh, of course, unless someone like yourself says, oh, you know, could you take that bit out, which of course we'd respect. But I think more and more people like that unedited and they don't even mind the mistake staying in because it proves you've not doctored it in any way. Yeah, I think there's a wisdom that I, I'm sometimes, I, I have bloopers and blunders, blunders as they say, but um, I, you see them, that's mm. the way it is. And, like, and I bet your followers probably like that, that you're real and not a machine. Sometimes that's the thing that they talk about. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the best part. Yeah. But um yeah, sometimes I'm a little risque on my, my language and, sometimes. and get blunt, <laughs> yeah. and, and uh, they, they get a kick out of that sometimes, and sometimes yeah. they don't, So, but that's who I am. So, mm. so we have a mutual friend, and um, every time you have a meeting with him, you don't even know this, but every time you have a meeting with him or vice versa, we have a, a good chat. It's Paul O'Mahony, um, and he was sharing with me that you have a very long legacy. You've just uh, created a very long life plan beyond your life? Well, I wrote out, I started writing my mission statement and my goals really right at the junction of 17 and 18 years of age. And I'm just about 65 now. So I've been writing on that and updating that. It's 4,700 and something pages of wow. objectives, goals, and gratitudes and 
posthumous biography of how I want to be perceived in the future. Mm -hmm. Everything that I've that inspires me, or that I've had the opportunity to do, and the metrics of accomplishment along the way, um, is in this text. It's twenty four volumes actually. Now. Wow! So it's a it's the most significant writings I put effort on. In fact, I update them every single day of my life. Mm. They get updated. And um, I don't want to sort of undermine it by calling it a journal or a diary um, because it may be a lot deeper than that. But is it really a, a tracking of your life? And could you explain a bit more about what it is? Well, it starts off with uh, kind of like my overall plan, uh, what I want to accomplish. And then I break that down into my spiritual quest, my mental development quest, my business quest, my financial quest, family, social, and physical quests. Yeah. So I break life into those seven areas. And I have the, the, everything that I've dreamed about, I've articulated and refined and edited down into paragraphs that are very precise. And as I read them, I'll refine them and tighten them up. And I'll put the dates. Mm. And then underneath them, um, as I go along and I show evidence of achieving it, I'll document inside that the metrics of what I achieve. Yeah. And that's my way of confirming that it's not just some fantasy. It's something I really am committed to making happen. Mm. And so I have those metrics under the goal and then they accumulate. Yeah. So for instance, if I want to reach a number of people, uh, radio, television, newspapers, magazines, podcasts, everything, I'll have a list of all those mediums. And then as I do them, I'll document them and document the number of people that I believe it's reaching, estimate best I can. So I know where I am and how it's going along the way. Mm. And if I'm writing books, I'll document each of the books that I've done, uh, each of the manuals, um, everything I do, books. I'm, I'm neurotic enough to even document the books and the numbers of books that I read um, because I, that's something I keep records of. Um, everything that I do that's, that was an original goal is written, defined, and metriced. Mm. And do you think there's some kind of manifest or um, maybe even quantum nature to those coming into reality? Yeah, it, it, it helps screen out fantasies from realities, and it helps uh, give feedback on what's working and not working, and it allows you the fulfillment and inspiration that it's being achieved. Mm. Uh, some of the goals I remember writing in my 20s. Uh, but it's fun to look back. It's, it's, it's inspiring to look back because I, I wrote a goal um, at one point in, in uh, October uh, 12th, 1982, for instance, that I wrote out. But it didn't get achieved until uh, October, almost 12th, almost to the day, uh, 2016. Wow. So that was a goal that was a long-term goal of to reaching and having students in every country in the world. So we finally documented students coming in from some sort of meeting from every single country. So that was a goal, to reach uh, somebody from every country in the world. Mm. That took that many years to get to accomplish, but I, I was keeping metrics of it. We finally got mm. it. So I'm always inspired to talk to you because it does make me up my game. And I remember in the early days when I used to set a few goals, like everyone does, uh, and then talking to you a few years ago, I really realized I could be make way more clear, way more specific and, way more, and have much more volume of goals. I remember talking to Mark Victor Hansen. He said, I do hundreds of goals every year. And if I only achieve half of them, well, then that's better than, you know, writing five or six goals. Um, and I think goals is something that maybe in the 80s or 90s, a lot of people were talking about. I don't feel like people are talking enough about setting goals. Would you say that's a big driver of you achieving what you want to achieve in your life? 
Yeah, I, I think it's interesting you mentioned Mark because um, in 1983, I was in a Las Vegas hotel. I think it was a Riviera. And we were doing a conference together at a, a professional, a doctor professional kind of conference. There's quite a few thousand people there. And we would meet in this roped off area in the restaurant and we were exchanging the goals. Right. And uh, he, I remember he wrote at the time that someday I want to write a runaway best-selling book that inspires millions of people filled with inspiring stories. That's exactly what he did. <laughs> and, that was, and that was before Chicken Soup for the Soul emerged. Mm. But I remember him exchanging that. And I told him my goals and we exchanged those. And for a number of years, we would actually exchange those goals by, by letters and sending those goals. Mm. We kind of held each other accountable along the way. Mm. And um, eventually that became emails in the, by the 90s and we would email it. But that was a, kind of a ritual to kind of help each other, kind of hold each other accountable. Mm. I had a gentleman named Monty Pendleton, who's in his 90s today, who is the inventor of the thing. If you look out the window, it's clear. If you look in, it's got a mirror or a color on it. He developed that, created the Sun Company to stop reflections of the sun coming in and blinding people. And um, he was sort of a mentor. He was one of the Silver Fox advisors, friends with George Bush Sr. And um, he was, whenever we would go to lunch, he would have me give him my goals. And then he would one year later come back and find out how accountable I'd been. Mm. And it was really nice to have him, you know, what did you actually accomplish? Yeah. And to this day, we are communicating in that way. Wow. To this day. And this has been over 33 years we've been, we, we've been interacting. Mm. And um, I do believe that any area of your life you don't empower, other people will overpower. Yeah. And if you don't empower yourself intellectually, you'll be told what to think. If you don't empower yourself business-wise, you'll be told what to do. If you don't empower yourself financially, you'll be told what you're worth. If you don't empower yourself in relationship, you'll be pushed around by the spouse. <laughs> And the kiddos. Uh, Stop. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. <laughs> if no, you don't really. empower yourself um, in social settings, you'll be told what propaganda to believe mm. and uh, the biases of the society and the tradition and convention you're, convention you're by. If you don't empower yourself in health, you'll be told what organs to remove and what drugs to take. And if you don't empower yourself spiritually, you'll be told some maybe dogmatic, irrational, antiquated construct. Mm. So if you don't take command of your life, other people do. Yeah. And if you don't fill your day with high-priority actions that inspire you, entropy takes over and your day fills up with low-priority distractions that don't. So once you understand that, you realize that nobody's getting up and dedicating their life to your fulfillment. And if you're not, you're going to be having entropy take over and you're going to be inundated by extrinsic sources of possibly opportunistic activities of other people trying to vie for your attention. Mm. So wisdom is to prioritize and, and take command of your life. Yeah. You're captain of your ship, master of your fate. You're the one that determines you're a, a master of destiny or a victim of history. Mm. And how do you empower yourself in all those areas? Because that's a lot of areas. And I guess when you look at super specialized, hyper obsessive people, they've obviously really mastered one area and probably suffered in others. Well, my dream, each person has a different dream, different set of priorities. My dream was to contribute and master in each area. When I was 18, uh, I wanted to master my life. I then learned at that time about the seven areas that I use. Uh, now, people have divided ca categories of areas of life into six, eight, 10, 12. I use seven. It doesn't make it right. It's just, a, it's a model. Mm. I set out at the time to create original ideas that served humanity. 
That was a dream. I've been saying that affirmation in my head. I create original ideas that serve humanity decades mm. since then. I wanted to create an international business. I knew I wanted to step foot in every country and share my research with the people, my ideas. I knew I wanted to be financially independent. I knew I wanted to have a global family. Uh, I didn't. I, I live on a ship called the world, mm. which is a good metaphor for that because it goes all over the world and it's called the world and that's home. Mm. I've said since I was 20 that the universe is my playground, the world is my home, every country's a room in the house, every city's a platform to share my heart and soul. Yeah. I want to have social influence and, and meet amazing people. So I even keep inventories of all the people mm, that I've I did that meet. as well. Yeah. For me, that's the most fun thing in the All world. the most amazing people yeah. that have global influence. Anybody that has a global influence, I keep a record of. Because mm. that's me hanging out with people that I wanted to reflect and, and own those traits and be like. I wanted to also have a vital body. I'm nearly 65 and I'm doing pretty good, I think. I've mm. got more energy than most people at 65. And I want to be inspired and create a movement of inspiration, not a religion, but a movement of inspiration that no matter what your philosophical, spiritual viewpoint is, you can participate in. Mm. That could inspire people. I set out to do that and that's happening. So it'd be impossible to convince them you can't impact all areas mm. as you want them. Now, I know different people have targeted one area or two areas or whatever and excelled at it, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with whatever structure you want. But I, for myself, wanted to master all of them because mm. I felt that uh, I didn't want to be specialized in one area only. I've never been fulfilled that way. Mm. I also noticed that looking and interacting with people in my signature program, The Breakthrough Experience, when I ask people, women particularly, what are you looking for in a man? They'll go, I'm looking for a guy that's good looking and fit. I'm looking for somebody that is intelligent. I'm looking for somebody that's ambitious. I'm looking for somebody who has resources, somebody that would love to have a family with me and be with me, somebody that's socially influential and get along with all the people I know and be inspiring to be with socially, uh, somebody that's uh, also inspired by some mission. And I go, well, that's what every female is also looking for pretty well. And so are men. Men are looking for women that are empowered. So I thought, why not empower my life? Why would I expect to have an empowering partner if I am not empowered? So there's many motives for why I want to do that, because I think at the end of your life, you're asked a simple question. Did you do everything you could with everything you were given? And did you feel you had an amazing life, an inspiring life? Mm. I wrote a book with that title because that's what I wanted for myself and other people. Yeah, great. So how far beyond your life does your legacy go? Well, I haven't, uh, I don't know for fact all that because I haven't uh, gotten on the other side yet. Um, But I do know something really inspiring occurred. Um, so I'll share the story. I may have shared this before. I don't know. Uh, in the year 1999, I was speaking in Rome doing the breakthrough experience. And at the end of that, uh, there was a lady there who was the wife of the host who invited to take me on a little tour of Rome before I was flying out the next evening. And I said, I would love to, because I'd only been into some parts of Rome. I hadn't seen much of it. So she uh, took me on a tour the next day. And it just happened to be on the anniversary of the day they killed and um, executed by fire a a gentleman named Giordano Bruno, who was a philosopher, astronomer, theologian. And uh, there was a square in Rome that has a a marble base and a bronze statue that sits. It's about the size of a soccer field and with buildings around it seven stories high, roughly. And in the middle of that square is his statue. And the entire square was roped off and it was covered in red rose petals. So here's, we came upon the square and I knew about Giordano Bruno because I'd studied philosophy and theology and astronomy. 
And um, I, I, it, was, it was a very special thing to see because here, 400 years from the time he was executed, they're now honoring him 400 years ahead of his time uh, as a genius ahead of his times. Because he believed that there was an infinite world, an infinite number of worlds with infinite potential beings in an infinite universe. At the time, uh, Ptolemy and Aristotle had a geocentric system that was confined to a very solarized kind of view of life and the universe. And the Catholic Church at the time didn't like people that thought outside that box. It interfered with their control. And so they tortured him and put him in prison and then eventually executed him. But now, when all of a sudden the the powers of science and the enlightenment period of the 18th century, whatever, opened up those doors. Uh, he became now way ahead of his times and a genius and honored for his heliocentric construct, like Copernicus. Mm. Well, when I sat and I saw that, um, I remember reading about his work, and I read a little bit more after seeing that again, and I found that he wrote a posthumous biography when he was in prison about how he wanted to be perceived uh, 500 years into the future. Wow. And I, and I realized that here, 400 years later, it's happened. Mm. It's manifested what he wrote. And that night, um, as I was flying and when I got to the next location, I, I uh, got so inspired. I, I was kind of like Tom Cruise and Jerry Maguire, writing with tears in your eyes. Mm. I wrote a 23-page posthumous biography of how I want to be perceived a thousand years into the future, mm. just projected into the future. And kind of like a, what would Wikipedia say in the future kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, I wrote it all out. And that was right at 1999-2000, right before the big Y2K kind of turn. In 2009, I was blessed to be invited to speak at the Melk Abbey over the Danube, this beautiful uh, abbey there, with uh, another dozen, well, 11 other speakers to 200 people from around the world dealing with the six biggest issues in the world and trying to solve these issues. One was conflict, and that's why I got to speak and bring my Demartini method, which is a conflict resolution method. And on the Saturday night, they had a special kind of ritual that I wasn't prepared or even know about, but I was asked to be there. And they took each of us, and they handed us a stainless steel cylinder in the library of the Milk Abbey, a stainless steel cylinder, completely sealed off, that had in calligraphied scroll paper, 365 quotations from my books and writings, and the Demartini method that I presented there, um, calligraphied and scrolled and vacuum sealed into this thing. And we walked down the library to the very back of the library. And there was a special room called the Infinity of Divinity Library Room. And in there is about a 12-foot infinity bookshelf. And we got to stick the cylinders. I got to put mine directly in the center aspect of it to be stored there for a thousand years. And so when I did that, I got tears in my eyes, and I realized it's amazing. If you write a posthumous biography, you may just manifest something that could last a thousand years. And then I realized we go around theologically and say we're immortal souls, but very few of us write immortal goals, yeah. ones that transcend our own mortal time or things that might leave a mark in history. And I, I say that there's no reason to stop our extension in space and time of what we set as a goal, because we could potentially just manifest that if we we're willing to do the due diligence and the actions of priority to get you that result. Mm. It kind of seems like a shame to move off that point, because I think we could do a whole talk on that. Um, but I think we'll just leave that there, because I think that's amazing. Uh, and now I'm going to bring in a couple of questions from the community, um, because they were very excited about this interview. Uh, many of them have studied your work like I have. Uh, I think in particular, the values factor is 
your work that most people have studied the most. So Rachel has asked, and I think it's inspired by this book, um, is there a common value in the most successful people? Um, because there's seven areas of life, there are people who are successful raising a beautiful family. And I use Rose Kennedy as my classic example of that because she's, she wrote a mission statement that I actually got the book that it was handwritten in. And it says, I dedicate my life to raising a family of world leaders. Now, she is an incredible success, as far as I'm concerned, as a mother raising the incredible children that all made a difference in the world. So here's a woman that wrote a, a, a goal about her family that led to leaders that impacted the world. That's a high achievement. But that's not the classical achievement that many people think of, that when they think of its achievement, sometimes they, they, they think in business and finance. Mm. And, or how society or, defines yeah, a genius. Yeah. That's right. So each society has a different set of traditions and conventions and mores and value structures that are probable. But to me, success occurs or achievements occur, fulfillment occurs in all the seven areas. You could have a spiritual quest that could be the thing that's the high achiever. You could have a mind development. Freeman Dyson at the Institute of Advanced Studies, who I've had the opportunity to meet with, I got to go. He took over Albert Einstein's position at Princeton. And, I, and there was that famous uh, blackboard where Einstein wrote that equation. I always wanted to go there. So I got to write my formula on there and take a picture of it. But, but meeting him, here's a gentleman uh, who is in his 90s now, 95, I believe. And he has dedicated his life to studying everything he can about the, that would help humanity. And that would be an unbelievable achievement, but he's never been driven by business or finance. Mm. And then you got others that are driven by social causes, but they're not business and finance. You got others that are incredibly business geniuses, but not financial. Mm. You got others that are business and finance. You got intellect, business and finance. You have all the different variations, social contribution. You got people that are involved in Olympic medalists or bodybuilders, which we have common friends here. <laughs> and, and, and they could be, they're doing extraordinary things by incredible focuses and achieving in the area of their highest value. Mm. So anytime you're fulfilling and doing congruently whatever's highest on your value, I believe we can define that as an achievement and success. Mm. But it may not be the classical thing that some people in society have labeled success. Yeah. I have people coming to my breakthrough experience regularly and say, I'm not a success. Really, they are but they're not honoring it because they're comparing them to another form with another set of values. And I see that re regularly. But as Einstein said, if you're a cat and you're expecting yourself to swim, you're going to beat yourself up and think you're a failure. Mm. Or if you're a fish and you're expecting yourself to climb, you're going to think you're a failure. But if you honor who you are and know what your values are and live congruently with them and not compare yourself to others, but compare your daily actions to your own highest priorities that are most meaningful, you will unfold a great leadership that's dormant and achieve us and achievements and success that other people uh, with a different set of values won't see, but the people with similar values will honor. Yeah, great. So I have a personal conflict, if I could be a bit selfish and share that with you now. So most of my whole life, I've got half decent at a lot of things, whether they're sports or subjects or art, and I've never really felt like I've got good, great at any one thing. And I've always felt like society rewards greatness. You know, society rewards someone who honours and masters one area for many decades. You know, they say it takes 10 years to become an overnight success and all the people who are the best at what they do have done the 10,000, 20,000 hours. And I just struggle with that my whole life because I feel like my strength is no one strength. 
and then and then trying to sort of honour myself of what the strengths I have. Maybe I'm good at being a generalist. I don't know. Um, and I think there's a lot of people who maybe can relate to that. Entrepreneurs especially. I mean, we've got to be good at sales. We've got to be good at marketing. We've got to know the finances. We've got to know social media. We've got to know recruitment. We've got to do a lot of things. And I find great entrepreneurs are often good generalists. So um, what help can you give me on my own internal conflict of how, how do I become great at something, one thing, but knowing I'm a bit of a generalist? Well, you're talking the person that's reflecting you there. I, um, I remember, I, I've been told by many that, that, you know, you can't do a lot of things. You got to be. But the, the problem in my life is that I have been inspired by what they call polymaths. And polymaths are individuals that had a, a typically nine or 10 or more different areas of mastery and specialty. They put in the extra hours. Truly, they did put the hours in, but they did many things. And typically, the people that had the biggest contribution over time have been those individuals. Uh, you know, Spencer and, and even Einstein was one of those. And, and Freeman Dyson is definitely one of those. So I used to struggle with that same conflict mm. because I should be doing this one thing. But and the you should can is, feel very thinly stretched. Yeah, but you? what happens is you get masterful at more, you know, more and more and more about less and less, mm. and or less and, instead of less and less about more and more. I was flying from, I think, Dallas, Texas to Houston, Texas one time, and there was a gentleman sitting there reading a, an article, a scientific article, and it was on kinase enzyme. And I had studied kinase enzyme because it's one of the mediators for uh, second messengers into nuclear effects. And it's involved in cancer research and things. And this guy was a specialist. And I asked if I could read the article after it. And I, I read it and I took notes and I wrote it and I got my computer out and I typed some stuff. And he says, what do you do exactly? Why are you interested in this article? I said, well, I'm just interested in a lot of things, but that's, that seemed like an intriguing article. And he said, well, I'm a specialist in a particular kinase enzyme in thyroid follicular cancer. And I spent 27 years studying this one enzyme. Wow. <laughs> And I, I said, well, scary. Do, you, do you know how to talk about anything else? <laughs> he goes, barely. And I thought, okay, I'm very, it made I really me feel, admire someone it made me feel that. grateful mm. that I had a, a more diverse information. And he was actually looking to me and going, that's intriguing to see that somebody would be interested in kinase enzyme who's not a kinase specialist. Mm. But I was interested because it applies to human behavior and genetics and epigenetics and perceptions and how it affects genes and health. Yeah. So I was grateful at that moment when I realized that he had gone farther and farther and farther into something and knew more about that than probably anybody and had a specialty and was successful at it. But I had been diversified and I felt more well-rounded. Mm. So I have been in that same situation you have. I'm grateful, but I've also, you know, the breakthrough experience I've done 1,067 times and it's 26 hours each time. So it's a 28,000 hours I put into just that one seminar. Wow. <laughs> so, so I consider myself a specialist there, yeah. but I have a whole lot of them. And I, I believe that if you put the hours in, you can do extraordinary things in many fields. Mm. I don't think you have to be. One of my uh, colleagues and, and residents that lives on the ship, the world, is a gentleman named Herbert Wertheim. Herbert is a very brilliant polymath, and he's contributed, he's, he's patented 4,000 items in the world of optics. I mean, things have gone to, to the moon and things that are in space and things that we wear on our glasses. Uh, he's built five uh, universities, I believe. He's donated $100 million to uh, Bill Gates Foundation. He's done extraordinary things, but a polymath. Mm. 
He's, he's, he's extremely diverse, and we could talk on any topic for hours, yeah. and a uh, hundred hours on a hundred different topics. Mm. And to me, that's also inspiring, mm. well more well-rounded. So I wouldn't negate that. I would just be willing to put in the extra hours. But most of the people that are, that are diversified, they started in one area and worked out. I started in the health area and worked out. And um, health is still one of my intrigued uh, topics. Mm. But I realized that anything to do with maximizing human awareness and potential is going to be involved. So if I'm studying uh, the nutrition of somebody to maximize performance, and I'm studying cofactors and down minerals, and I go and study mineralogy, and then I go to geology, and I look at bacteriology and how it's affecting the genes by the minerals involved, then all those fields are all about how do I maximize performance? Mm. So that polymathic approach enhances my inspiration to want to contribute to the human beha behavior. Uh, I think along the way, certainly in my mid to late 30s, I'm 40 now, I think I've started to own that about myself and love that about myself instead of looking at who I could have been and where I could have been and what I didn't quite get good enough at. And I, and I think that really helped. So. Well, if we, compare, to hear that. if we compare ourselves to other people, we're going to not appreciate right. who we are. Yeah. I, I was asked by, on Vogue magazine, a uh, uh, crazy interview, 17 questions. The very last questions I got, or question I got, was, Dr. DiMartini, if there's anybody in the world you could be, who would it be? And I'm thinking, what the hell kind of question is that? I said to him, I said, I have no desire to be anybody but Dr. DiMartini. Mm. So why would I want to be anybody but me? Mm. Why would I want to be second at somebody instead of first at me? Mm. And, and they kind of went, oh, okay, most people say this or that. <laughs> and I, I couldn't understand why they would think like that. Because uh, the magnificence of who you are is far greater than any fantasies that you'll compare yourself to or try to be. Mm. And many people minimize themselves as they walk through the street or in the mall or something, they see somebody they go, oh, that person's more successful or more intelligent, or that person's got more money, or that person's got a more stable relationship, or that person's more socially savvy or got a bigger network, or they look, they look more fit or they're more inspired or spiritual or something. And I go, no, we have all those things in our own form, according to our own values, but we're not honoring them because at the level of the essence of the soul, nothing's missing in us. And the things in our senses, we have this thought that we're missing it. We're mm. too humble or too proud to admit what we see in others inside us. But the fact is, and I've proven this in the breakthrough experience, whatever you see in other people, you got. Yeah. But it's in your form. And if you don't honor your form, you're going to miss out on the potential that you can actualize in the in the creative world. Mm. So I guess it's like it seems to me like a fine balance between being inspired by others to own their traits that you want to maybe improve in yourselves, but honoring who you are at the same time. Well, the owning of the trait is not the denial of you having it; it's the realization of what form it's already in. Right. So it's you're if you honor somebody, it's not because they have something you don't; it's because you're too humble. You have it yet, mm. and once you realize you have it, you then play in the same playing field. Mm. I mean, I've had uh, many, many students have been to the breakthrough experience that have gone through owning the traits, the greats, as I call it, yeah. and realizing whatever they see in them, where they have it. When they actually get through with doing it, amazing stuff happens. Mm. I had a young lady that was basically trying to own the traits of Beyonce, and she's an uh, up-and-coming pop star. Two and a half weeks later, Beyonce contacted her and asked her to sing in her home wow. and do a performance there. That kind of stuff happens because when you value, so does the world. But if you're basically devaluing yourself because of comparison, instead of honoring yourself because of living congruently, you're going to miss out on the potential and opportunities that are around you that you can't see. Mm. And how do you really know yourself? Well, the, the Delphic Oracle said, know thyself, be thyself, love thyself. Well, in all my studies, in the hierarchy of values, the highest value 
which the ancient Greeks called the telos, um, is the highest value. That's the thing that is where our identity revolves around. Yeah. And I've, and I've done that in tens of thousands of people in Breakthrough. When we go through the value determination and we identify the top one, I ask how many of you right now can see that your life and identity revolves around that top one? And they all put their hands up. I said, well, that yourself is that. It's an expression of what that is. And that could be morphing and transforming through life as you go through life. But whatever it is, your identity is going to mold around that. So if you're a young boy and you're into video games and you're, you love video, a particular video game, you may identify yourself as that individual. If you're in baseball, you may identify yourself as a great baseball player, business, an entrepreneur, family, a, a, a wife, a mother. Whatever it is, it's to be honored. None, none of it is greater or lesser than anything else ultimately. Yeah. Although society labels it so based on the values of the collective mm. and our collective conformity uh, constricts our enormity. Mm. And that is really, sounds like a, a greater part of your Values Factor book. That's one of the primary purposes yeah. of it, to help people liberate themselves from the conformity. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, envy is ignorance and imitation is suicide. Trying to live in the shadows of others is not the way to shine across the world and make the biggest difference. How are you going to make a difference if you're fitting in? Mm. You're only going to make a difference if you stand out. Yeah. Great. So again, I could talk about that for hours, but I've got another a question. I need maybe about 30 seconds leading if this is okay, because you said something to me a few years ago and it really struck and I'm not sure I fully understood it and I've been trying to get my head around it. The family dynamic. So, um, you know when people say, isn't it weird how my children are different? And like, it's not meant to be like that. <laughs> and I feel like it is meant to be like that. Uh, and also, I think there's a lot of people in relationships where they want to be their partner's highest priority. And I say this with love, but I know I'm not my wife's highest priority. I know that my children are her highest priority. I know that because of where she spends her time, where she spends her money and everything else. And that was hard at me at first, you know, when the ego kicks in and I want to be the most important thing. But it actually serves me and my family better if my children are her first priority, because then that helps me also in a mirrored way, have my priority as the business and the empire, which I go and build and chase my mission, which also equally serves her and the children. I'm trying to get my head around that and your words ring in my ear about the balanced family dynamic. And I don't, I think a lot of people don't understand it. Um, I put a post out saying it's okay to be your husband or wife's second priority and vice versa. If you're creating an equal mission um, and that might be you build your empire and you serve and look after the empire. So I know it's a bit rambly, but could we talk about that? Yeah, I love that. Um, every, in the family, the whole summation of all the values in the family are going to cancel each other and they're going to create an androgyny. So if you're very dedicated over to business and finance and intellectual pursuits, you're very commonly attract somebody that's focused on family, social, and health and beauty pursuits. Mm. Because, it, because it's vital needed. for evolution of you humanity. You need resources yeah. and you need reproduction. Yeah. Those two things. You see this in a penguin colony. If you go to Antarctica, right. you can see the penguin colony. Yeah. You can see the the the... the Male penguins are going out and battering a bunch of rocks and building this little nest. And the more rocks that they have, which is resource, like it's like millions of dollars, you might mm. say, uh, the most beautiful penguins go there. <laughs> and you can see, and they're very symmetrical. They're very hot, hot to trot, you know, supermodel kind of penguins. Yeah. And then if you got this one guy that's kind of a gimpy guy that's having difficulty even gathering a rock, and he piles it over here and there's just this one rock— you get this kind of gimpy one that's spotted penguin or something that goes and finds it, you know. There's somebody for everybody. Yeah. But you can see that there's a resource reproduction mechanism there. 
Because mm. the bigger the nest, the bigger the, the more the chicks, and the more the prob probability of fertility, mortality, survival mechanisms. Mm. So you see that mechanism, and I think we we see it in our families. And if any two people are exactly the same, one's not necessary. Yeah. You would actually probably be a, a serial killer of yourself if you married yourself. Right. You, yeah. you, you, you just go nuts with it. Yeah. So, so why is there so much conflict when people are looking for versions of themselves? Yes. Twilight Zone did a specialty on that on a, in America, a TV show called Twilight Zone, where a guy got up and he had to deal with all these people with these different views. And he goes, I wish everybody would be just like me. And the next morning, everybody was him. And I bet he hated it. And he <laughs> just goes, please give me those people back. Because yeah. it drove him nuts. Yeah. But um, nature has a way with its wisdom to make sure that there's an expression of anything that's repressed. So if you have a hierarchy of values, whatever's higher in your value, you tend to express an extrovert. Whatever's lower in you, you tend to introvert. And whatever that is, you need that part done mm. in the androgyny and to make the family work. And so a company, you, the same thing. Same thing yeah. in a company. So companies follow that same law. Mm. Social structure, you'll mm. find. There's a law of heuristic escalation saying that there, for everything you're striving for, there's somebody doing the opposite to balance it. And it's needed like to remodel. you have a, a big fan and a hater simultaneously. Pro-life, pro-borders, yeah. pro-guns, anti-guns, pro-drugs, mm. anti-drugs. Those are necessary to build and destroy to remodel society for a changing astronomical environment that the planet's moving through and having to adapt to. So we see that in our physiology. We see that in our sociology. So we need that. And so our children, I, I make a fun thing out of it. Typically, when you're, you're making love, you're not in the mode where you're resenting each other. You're, you're a little bit of infatuation, usually. And so when you're infatuated, you're blind to some of the downsides. Yeah. And so what happens is while you make love, your parasympathetic nervous system comes in. It basically acetylates some of the histones in DNA to make sure that there's an expression of DNA in the offspring that you actually produce that express the traits that they are opposite of what you're infatuated with when you made love. Wow. To make sure that you get the expression of the opposite, to teach you how to love the parts that you're disowning and trying to avoid in life, to make sure you're whole instead of just running around looking for pleasure and avoiding pain, which stagnates the growth process. Because uh, the, our, our maximum growth occurs at the border of support and challenge, and we need both of those in the family. So if you, I remember this one guy was trying to control his kids, and the more he tried to control of his kids, the more out of control these kids became, <laughs> as a perfect mechanism to make sure that they were getting that. Another example was a, a lovely family. There's this Pentecostal family, a religious family, where the father was a minister and the mother was very involved in the church and they're very promoting and they're anti-gay and anti-drugs and anti-pornography uh, and anti-anti-anti-everything. And they had one daughter and she specialized in every one of those things. <laughs> she did every single thing that they condemned on the public to teach them to come down off their pride and to get equal and to level the playing field in society. Mm. So nature has a way of expressing the repressions and playing with opposites. And you marry, not for happiness, as some people say. Yeah. You marry to find somebody you can delegate low-priority things to. <laughs> they do the same to, so you both get things done efficiently. Yeah. So this happiness, uh, maybe delusion is the wrong word, but again, I've been trying to wrestle with this. I think a lot of people, especially now, with the minimalism and the veganism and everything, they're like, they think that the purpose of life is happiness. I often get a bit of criticism when I say I believe that the purpose of life is evolution and growth to maximize our potential to self-actualize, whatever. Have you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I'm agreeing with you. I, I, in my prophecy program, which is my seven-day program on leadership, I have a whole section on there on the illusions of pursuing the hedonistic pursuit of happiness. Mm because that's probably the saddest people I've ever met, yes. are people setting unrealistic expectations on one-sidedness. I tell people in the seminar, I said, 
if I go up to a, a woman, I usually pick a woman in the seminar for, for pick on, and I say, all right, if I was to go to you and I was to say, you're always happy, never sad, always kind, never cruel, always nice, never mean, always positive, never negative. Always peaceful, never wrathful. Always generous, never stingy. Always giving, never taking. Always considerate, never inconsiderate. Would you believe me? No. Mm. I said, your bullshit meter goes off and intuitively you know and bring up all the times when you're the opposite of what I just said. Yeah. She goes, yeah. I said, if I said to you, you're always mean, you're never nice, you're always cruel, you're never kind, you're always taking, never giving, always stingy, never generous, always inconsiderate, never considerate, always negative, never positive, always wrathful, never peaceful, would you believe me? She goes, no. And her bullshit meter goes off and thinks those are nice times. But if I said to you, sometimes you're nice, sometimes you're mean, sometimes you're kind, sometimes you're cruel, sometimes you're peaceful, sometimes you're wrathful, sometimes you're inconsiderate, generous, stingy, et cetera. But sometimes both. Would you believe me? And they go, yes. They have certainty because there's an objectivity, a balanced perspective. And there's certainty when you have that. And you can never have certainty with the polarization, mm-hmm. the emotionalization and subjective biases and positive uh, you might say false positives and false negative perceptions, which is survival med mode, isn't true. Yeah. So if you have goals that are that way and expect life to be that way, you set yourself up for the A, B, C, D, F, G, H's of negativity. You'll be angry and aggressive towards the person because you have an unrealistic expectation on them to be one-sided. And you, you'll, you'll be, feel betrayed and, and blame them. You'll criticize them and challenge them. You'll feel despaired and depressed. You'll want to exit and escape. You'll feel frustrated and futile. You'll want to grieve and, and be grouchy. And you'll want to hate them and hurt them mm. because they're not matching your fantasy. And so I think that the pursuing of one-sided poles of a magnet in life, when nature is entangled with opposites, as Heraclitus said in, in 500 BC, and hasn't been changed since, you have a delusion. And yeah. you'll end up with a nightmare of a life pursuing a fantasy that's mm. not going to be obtained. Mm. And I know this is hard for people, especially when they're looking for happiness for their children and things like that. But I mean, you're way more knowledgeable on biology than me, but I've studied it a little bit. I mean, happiness is a reward. So, and I've found um, that the greater chemicals and the bigger the reward you know, in the brain are from our biggest challenges. So therefore- You need both. Yeah, you need challenge to have the happiness because we all know when we do something cheap and easy, we don't feel that happy. In fact, we can feel empty. And only when we've pursued our greatest challenges and difficulties do we then feel the ecstasy and the high. So they're interlinked. They're inseparable. Uh, C.S. Lewis described it. Many, many writers have described this. And uh, I always say that uh, the mind separates inseparables, divides indivisibles, labels the unlabelables, names the ineffables, and polarizes the unpolarizables only to then disempower ourselves in the pursuit of that which is unavailable and try and avoid that which is unavoidable, mm. which both of which are delusional. And those passions of incapacity, in, incapacity are automatically self-defeating. Yeah. So I'm a firm believer in setting a goal. A, a real objective in life has both sides. That's the, the purpose of the executive so center. And to the, seek out challenge. Well, the, the purpose of the executive center in the brain uh, is to rule out fantasies for true objectives. Mm. And a real objective has both sides. Mm. And you're anticipating what are all the challenges and obstacles you might face. The meditation of the evils, they used to say in the early Greek times. Yeah. And think about, and what do I do in case that happens? And how do I prevent them? And you're doing a true due diligence strategic plan to prevent those or to deal with those. And now what you've done is you've mitigated the risks and the fears that you would have in the pursuit of fantasies that are blindsided that you have to learn through trial and error on. Mm. So wisdom is having the foresight to see both sides of things. And to love somebody, you can't love them if they're only expecting one side. You're mm. going to love them when they have both sides. Because mm. every person you ever meet, if you make a list of everything you're looking for in a relationship, 
and write it all down. You go, oh, this is my dream person. And write down their opposite. That's what you're going to get. Mm. You're going to get both. Yeah. You're going to be nice and mean and kind and cruel. And I went through the Oxford Dictionary, and I found 4,628 traits in the dictionary of human behavior. Wow. And I found that I had every single one of them. Nice and mean, kind, cruel, honest, dishonest. I was everything that I ever found. And so I, instead of trying to get rid of half of yourself or trying to get rid of half the world or half of other people— Love the thing. Mm. People want to be loved and appreciated for the whole, not the parts. Yeah. And I guess every human being, as long as they have a sound mind, i.e. there's not something biologically wrong with them, probably has every other trait as well. I, I found every one of them. Yeah. So I don't waste my time thinking I don't have the trait. No. I got the trait. I may not have it in the way people project onto me. Or the way you want it. Well, no. Well, that's my delusion. The only time mm. I judge myself is when I compare my actions to somebody else's values. Right. If yeah. I'm living by my own values, I don't judge myself because I made that decision based on my values. Yeah. It's only when I've subordinated to other people's values that I actually think I make mistakes. Right. That's an important realization for people. Yeah. And that is a very important thing because I remember you saying to me one time, uh, we are actually here downstairs and my son had just got really good at golf. He's playing in the world championships. And um, we had a little bit of a chuckle because I think at that time I was probably trying to engineer him to be a certain way. And I think you realized that was a bit of a delusion. Um but I remember you saying to me, nothing you do to your children is a mistake. And I remember that, whoa, kind of blew me a bit. And then I remember um, I, I was struggling with him. We were just having some hardship. And he was misbehaving and I, my patience was eroded. And we were near the road and I pushed him away from the road, which is his safety. But I definitely gave him a bit too much. I pushed him too hard because I was angry and he fell over and he started crying his eyes out and everything else. And because I felt immediately awful. And I've, so I realised the purpose of guilt in that moment. I picked him up, put him in the car. And while he was in the back crying, I went on to Audible. And I, I bought every parenting audio book that there was on Audible, bought them, read them, and really upped my skills and knowledge as a parent. And I realized that served him. And that was a big, for me, a big moment that even the mistakes I make serve to maybe challenge my children or make them independent. And of course, sometimes when I perceive I'm doing them well, maybe I'm making them dependent. Which is confusing because you always want to do the best for your children, but who you are is the best for your children. Yeah, it's a paradox uh, filled with paradoxes. I, I, I jokingly say in the seminar, did they survive? If you did, you succeeded. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, every parent has uh, sometimes wrestling with this comparison of what idealisms are. Mm. And then eventually you realize that, that that's fantasy. That you're not going to live by these idealisms. You're going to live according to your values. You're going to yeah. respond according to your values at that moment. And, and many times people that have, you know, there may be PhDs or whatever, and they specialize in this and they have crazy kids and they, but they're trying to figure out how to do it themselves, put these idealisms and these, their own values onto society and try to make things right and wrong. Mm. And that to me is self-defeating because uh, if you look very carefully, I, I had this, this um, psychologist that had this child and the child was, quote, an orphan. And so the, 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 the psychologist was basically saying, well, then you have a high probability of these conditions and high probability of these problems. And, and she was proud at labeling this child an orphan and what's the probable outcomes of his life and, you know, because he doesn't have this and that and that. And I stopped the whole thing and I just kind of slapped the psychologist and took the kid and I said, listen, let's go on the internet. You like the internet? Yeah. He said, let's go get on the internet and let's go look up how many of the most famous people in the world were orphans. There were 700 mm. of them. 700 people that were amazing, you know, that were orphans, Wayne Dyer, Bill Clinton. I mean, these are people yeah. that were, I mean, I can just go down the list of people, great achievers. And I just said, oh, you're in that category. And that shifted his entire mindset. 
I said, whenever your mom wasn't there, somebody else took the place of the mom. Who, who took on the role of the mom? Uh, yeah, my aunt and my sister and, and, and uh, this teacher at school I became friends with. And, and also the lady down the street used to always help me and do things with me. And I said, what was the benefit of them being in your life instead of your mom? Mm. We found the benefits of that. And if your mom had been there, what had been the drawback? And he had a fantasy of his mom had been there that the psychologist had trained him into thinking, if the mom were there, you'd be happier or something. Yeah. Ball. If your mom was there, what had been the drawbacks? And I neutralized the whole thing and he was empowered again. Mm. It has nothing to do with what happens. It has everything to do with how you interpret it, perceive, and what you decide to do with it and how you act from it. Yeah. And that's where you gain your power. Mm. Otherwise, you're, you're a victim of society instead of a master of your destiny. Yeah. Someone said to me a few weeks ago, it was Ed Milet. I um, had spent some time, quite a long time with him. And he said, um, there's a big difference between life happening to you and for you. And I just, I think it's a nice way of it ringing true. Life happens to you. You're a victim. Life happens for you. Everything happens for a reason. Well, it's, it's what you give it. Mm. If you decide to have meaning, I, I have people every weekend that have events in their life. And they think, oh, this is terrible. Mm. And I go, okay, if you choose, but let's go find out the other side because it's like a magnet. There's another side to the equation. You can yeah. go, you can choose to stay there or you can choose to see another side to it. Mm. And we go find what are the upsides and they never thought to look. Yeah. And if they look, they go find it and they go, oh, so this thing that's terrible is not so terrible. Mm. I, I, I had a fun thing. I was in uh, South Africa a few months ago and I had the opportunity to meet with an Israeli and Palestinian, some leaders there. And one of the questions that this one lady there asked, said, Dr. DiMartini, do you believe in absolute evil? And she was looking over at the guy on the other side of the table that she was upset with. And I said, <laughs> absolutely not. And she goes, oh, well, I do. And I said, oh, do you think that may have something to do with why you have had 14 years of non-resolving of an issue? She just kind of went, hmm. I said, what, let's do this. Let's define who this person is. Tell me who that person is. Don't, don't tell me, but just write down who the person is. Write it down. Good. Now, what specific trait, action, inaction does this individual display or demonstrate that you perceive to be absolute evil? And she, she spoke up and she says, intolerance. And she couldn't even see that she was being intolerant mm. at the moment. She was blind. Her bias, her subjective bias was so extreme. And I said, all right, so now let's go to a moment where and when you perceive yourself displaying or demonstrating moments of intolerance. I've never done that. I would never do that. I pride myself in not being that way. Stop, stop the bullshit and the pride. Go to a moment where and when you've done it. And I started rattling off times when I've been intolerant in many different cases. And she said, oh, in those cases. And we started listing them. And I listed 38 examples of when she was intolerant. Or she did. She mm. came out with them. And she got humbled. And she kind of goes, oh. And I made her do it until she could see that she was just as intolerant as the person she was judging. And it humbled her. And I said, now, you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't be doing those behaviors if there wasn't some motive in your mind to do it. And then that behavior has been on the planet as far as we can trace in history. And if it's on the planet, it's still here. It must serve a purpose or already gone extinct. Mm. So let's discover the benefits that came out of those, those behaviors. And the moments this person did it, how did it serve you? So go to a moment when you perceive this individual being intolerant, how did it benefit you? Well, it didn't. How did it benefit you? Mm. And we went and found 31 examples of the benefits that came out of that until she got a tear in the eye and actually felt gratitude for the gentleman. Mm. And then I said, now, do you think it's absolute evil or is it that you had narrowed your mind and had an absolute viewpoint of black and white instead of a relative understanding and put things into a situational ethics and for yourself? Mm. And she says, I definitely had bias. And I said, now, do you still think it's absolute evil in that? She goes, no. I said, great. We've made progress in our first session. Mm, right. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got about five minutes left. Can we do a quick fire round? 
Sure. Is that all right? I mean, you can obviously go a little bit off, but maybe if we could get sort of five or six questions done in five minutes. Um, so we've had Manit Petroda, who's asked, how do you retain so much knowledge? I believe you've read over 30,000 books. You can read so fast. I say the words in my head. I'm the slowest reader in the world. How do you retain so much knowledge? I apply it. Uh, and, I, and what I did is when I was 24, I was uh, studying dentistry and oncology and also uh, neurology work. And I had the opportunity to speak at a dental conference and a gentleman asked me a question and consciously I didn't know the answer until he asked it. At the moment he asked the question, unconsciously a photographic image of a page from Gray's Anatomy popped in my head and I recited it there. And when I got through that, I went, wow, I have knowledge that's going into my brain from visual input that's conscious and unconscious. And I've been trusting only the conscious and not opening my door for the realization that I have what's unconscious. Mm. When I did that, I just started devouring volumes of material and then not worrying about whether it came up or not. But when I needed it, it was there. Yeah. And then I realized I had way more capacity to retain information. And I actually like being challenged with questions because I get to discover what I didn't even know I had mm. in my knowledge. So you, if you have a purpose for reading it, if you link what you're reading to what you value most, if you apply it and share it as soon as possible and find a purpose for that information, your retention's there. It's not that he has or somebody else has a better or lesser. We all have that capacity. Mm. We just haven't used the capacity and linked things properly. When you're reading something you really, really, really value, you'll retain it. Yeah, great. Um, what's the best advice you've ever received? Best advice I've ever received? Well, just the one that just popped in my head as you said that was um, Howard Hughes, when I was 14 years old, uh, met me on the streets of El Paso, Texas, when I was hitchhiking on my way to California. Wow. And pulled me into a library. First, he pulled me to a little place and got me a little you know, a Coca-Cola to drink. Yeah. And then um, he took me to a library and he sat me down at a table and he went off and got a, a couple of books and put them on the table. And then he turned to me and he said, he said, young man, I want to, I want to teach you two things. You got to promise me you'll never forget it. And I said, yes, sir. I didn't know who he was at the time. He says, number one is don't ever judge a book by its cover because it'll fool you. Because, oh, you'll probably think I'm some bum on the street. I'm one of the wealthiest men in the world. I have everything that money can buy, ships, planes, businesses, homes, et cetera. So don't judge a book by its cover. And then he grabbed my hand and he stuck it on top of two books sitting on the table, which is Plato and Aristotle. Mm. He says, young man, you learn how to read. He said, because there's only two things they can never take away from you in your life. They can take away your loved ones. They can take away your possessions, but nobody can take away your love and your wisdom. So you gain the wisdom of love and the love of wisdom. Don't ever forget that young man. Those two things are immortal and nobody can take those away from you. Mm. Wow. Sorry to change tack, but often get some good answers, even though it's a terrible question. What's the worst advice you ever received? I don't know. I have never thought about that question. Yeah. What's the worst advice? Um, I don't even know how to answer that question. Well, someone once said to me, I don't retain bad advice. So that's a silly question. I, I, don't, I don't know if I have an answer for that. Yeah, which is- I'd have to really contemplate. That's probably the most difficult question I think I've yeah. asked. What's the bad, worst advice I've ever received? Which makes it a good question. Yeah, because I think I've, I, you learn something from whatever happens. Mm. So I don't know if I could say there's a worst. Yeah. Okay. Um, is there one thing in the world that you believe is really wrong that you'd like to change? I don't have an answer for that one either. 
I don't think there's anything. The way I see the universe is that whatever's happening, the equal and opposite's simultaneously happening. There's a conservation of information, a conservation of charge, a conservation of things. And the broader your awareness, the more you see the synthesis of the opposites. Mm. And the less you're trying to polarize and get rid of half of it. It's pointless to try to get rid of something. It's inspiring to be able to see how it fits in and discover the hidden order in the chaos. So I don't know if I have anything to get rid of or Mm. it's not the way. There's nothing to get rid of in the world. Yeah, great. So two more. Um, I remember you saying to me once that gratitude and love are the two most pure transcendent emotions. I'm kind of still trying to figure out what that means. I think I get closer, but I find the more I get closer to mastering something, the less I know about it. So could you sort of summarize, you know, gratitude and love as emotions and maybe their purpose and function and how they can help us? Well, if somebody gives you something and you say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, that could be an emotion because you could be a little bit elated about giving, receiving. But that's not real, true, in-depth gratitude, in my opinion. Gratitude, grace, if you will, gracias, mercy, occurs when you see the complete synthesis of opposites at the same time. When you see that somebody's being generous and somebody's being stingy at the same moment, and you go, ah, and you see that one is trying to build you up, one's trying to keep you down and keep you humbled, and there's an order to it, that opens your heart and allows you to be grateful for a hidden order, an implicate order in the apparent chaos, Mm. and allows you to open your heart and you feel love. To me, that is the most powerful state, because it's not a polarized state, it's a synthesized state. And gratitude, I don't, that gratitude is not emotion. Emotions are things that make you attract or repel and put you in motion. This poised state centers you and makes you poised and present and purposeful and patient and productive in a way that the emotions can't do. The emotions are common with the animals. Finding the mean between the emotions, which is meaningful, uh, which is gratitude and love, I still think are the two greatest healers of the planet. Mm. If I asked, you know, people in my break, so I've asked thousands of people, if you had only 24 hours to live, what would you do with your life? Inevitably, 99.99999% of everybody other than a joker will say, I would go to the people who've contributed to my life and say, thank you, I love you. Mm. So that's the essence of our existence. That's the soul of our being, if you will. And that's what fulfillment is about. Henry uh, James said that nothing of the senses will ever satisfy the soul. The only thing that satisfies the soul is thank you, I love you. Mm. Thank you. And then finally, this uh, podcast has the word disruptive in it, disruptive entrepreneur. What does that word mean for you? Somebody who's willing to be authentic enough to create an original idea that serves humanity and they're willing to go out and pursue it without conformity and be on a mission of of, of, of an individual on a mission to do something that's new and original Mm. on the planet. Great. And then where can we follow you and what work are you doing at the moment that you'd most like to share with everyone? Well, I don't want you to follow me. Because that would be like that would be technically the I meant on social media it's or social whatever. Media. Yeah. What I what I'd rather you do is is go on to the drdmartini.com. Well, they go on the social medias. I I'll be found there. But yeah. drdmartini.com. It's an educational website. They can see thousands of interviews. They can. There's so much they could do. I, I'd rather it be an enriching education. My life's about education. Mm. I'd rather them go and and take advantage of the education that's there. There's there's where we're where we're speaking. There's events. There's products. There's uh, videos, there's radio, television, newspapers, there's magazine, there's podcasts, everything there to, to learn. It's a learning channel, if you will. Yeah. Great. Dr. John, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you again. All right. It's a wrap. Thank you very much.